Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Can you name the last biography you read? For me, as a person also interested in politics, there have been a few political biographies I've read, but how about a biography in the Catholic Church? And today, we're going to speak about a biography of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz. It was a book that I happened upon by accident. Uh, I'm a longtime listener to the SiriusXM, the Catholic Channel, and was catching the tail end of Gus Lloyd's interview with this author, Kevin Wells. And he was speaking about this venerable Aloysius Schwartz, and he began talking about how devoted to Mary he was and everything like that. And uh, as I prepare to write a book called How They Love Mary and to feature the portraits of 30 individuals, I couldn't help but think I needed to read this biography to meet Al Schwartz so that maybe he could even be included in this book. I'm so delighted to be able to introduce you to this priest and beggar, The Heroic Life of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz, written by Kevin Wells, who is a former Major League Baseball writer an award-winning journalist, and the best-selling author of The Priests We Need to Save the Church, and also the book Burst. And so grateful to have you with me here today, Kevin. Father Looney, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. So I'm very interested, I guess, because you wrote that book, The Priests We Need to Save the Church. Now, you're not a priest, you're a layman, but you have a great love, it seems, for the priesthood. And what sparked that? What inspired this great love for priestly ministry of the church? Well, I'm from a family of priests. Uh, My brother Dave is a priest. My uncle, Monsignor Thomas Wells, uh, is considered by it's fair to say thousands as being one of the stronger one of the holiest priests in the history of the Archdiocese of Washington. He met his untimely death. He was murdered in his rectory in the year 2000. Oh, no. But just a yeah, very, very big story, um, really nationwide when it happened. It's uh, it kind of was the catalyst to writing the priest we need to save the church because it does sound enormously presumptuous and arrogant for an old sports writer to write a book. Um, the priests we need to save the church. But what um, what had inspired it was many years of uh, really, Father, to be candid, and I think it's time for candor in American Catholicism. From, from behind the ambo, it seemed that there was a contraception of transcendence, sort of a shutting down or a damming up of of all things noble and glorious about 2000 years of the truth. And I, and I kept, I kept thinking, father, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, plead with priests or, or tell priests, my, my pastor, my associate about, about um, these great priests that you, you were speaking of biographies. I've, I've read biographies on John Vianney, of Damien of Molokai, of Maximilian Colby, of the great paragons of the Titans. And, and I would have conversations and with father and pastor and he'd be in the backyard and, we have a beer or a soda or whatever. And it seemed that it just continued to spiral where nothing really happened. So, so I, I, I said, well, I'm going to write a book about what the greatest priest saints in the history of the church did with the parish priest. So I, I threw it out there and um, it, it sort of took hold and it kind of got out there a good bit. And, and really this, this latest book, Priest and Beggar, The Heroic Life of the Venerable Aloysius Schwartz, He's sort of the skin on the bones of the priest we need to save the church. 
Definitely. He's got this heroic life, and that's actually the subtitle of the book. And, you know, your book came out right at that, the the priest, the priest We Need to Save the Church. That book came out right as the scandals were erupting in the church. And so really it was a, a book that I think spoke to the hearts of so many different people because they said, well, we've seen the bad and we need to see the good. And so we can have these heroic examples, uh, the saints that you mentioned. And I can think of even pastors from my own life, my own priests that I went to confession to uh, as I was thinking about priesthood and college and how they were heroic in a sense. One of them was Father Al McBride, who was a great author, a, a Norbertine uh, here at St. Norbert Abbey in De Pere, Wisconsin. Uh, but also, too, uh, I've I've met different priests in history, never personally in the sense, but I've encountered their works, and, and they've had a profound impact on me. There was one priest named Father Daniel Lord that really, uh, when I encountered him by accident, kind of like how I met Father Al Schwartz, um, by accident, you know, just revolutionary when you read about their lives and see how they lived and they really challenge you. Father Patrick Payton was another one. So, so there are these priests that we truly do need. So yeah, I, I love that idea of being inspired by these saintly men and women and we, or saintly men that is, and so many now are on their path to sainthood that there are other priests who are whose causes are progressing, like uh, like Blessed Stanley Rother or Emile Capon, for example. Yeah, yeah, Father. I, I think I think we we sort of sense um, a a holy priest. Uh, almost, he's a priest through and through. He's just. He, I'm sorry, Father. He's just. We just sense it right away. It's almost like we. We sense that he's Marian, he's Eucharistic. He he holds himself sort of. He understands the burden of his identity as a priest, and it's beautiful. And the lady, and the ladies see it. They don't even try and see it. They just when they're in the presence of a of a holy priest, whether it's a venerable, blessed, or, or your local parish priest. If he's Marian, if he's Eucharistic, if he's prayerful, then you're naturally just drawn to him. You mentioned earlier that you're uncle or one of your relatives, the one that was tragically murdered in his rectory, that uh, he was a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington. And so Father Al Schwartz uh, was ordained or in Washington, D.C. He was from Washington, D.C., goes off to be a missionary. So I guess I'm wondering, how did you encounter him? How did you discover this saintly man? So, so Father, it's a great question. When a married couple read my book uh, in 2019, the priest we need to save the church. And they said, you know what? We, we know who that priest is. We want you to look at this life of this venerable Al Schwartz. And I had heard a little bit about him just because I'm from the DC area. And I had read some of what he had done in his life. And, and I'll tell you what, father, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I prepared reading my, uh, writing my earlier book by reading the Paragon, the lives of the Paragons, studying the lives of the Paragons. And what I had read in the life of Venerable Al, Father Al, uh, I hadn't read in any other biography. What he had done, I, I feel, to, to be outside the finger of God, a, a miracle, uh, a miracle of grace, something touched by Mary, um, something that Mary fed. Uh, and, and I said, my goodness, I, I why hasn't this why is why does nobody know about this priest and and then i found out he prayed not to be known he did not want to be known 
So Father Al died in 1992. And, and I said, well, you know, now it's time to sort of show who this man was, who this priest was. He, he should be, he, he should be known. And, and I called Ignatius Press and, and spoke to Father Fessio, the, the publisher, the president. And, and he, he said, no, I don't know him. And I explained who he was, he said, yeah, write this man's life. This man should be known. So that's kind of how it happened. Sure. Wow. You know, the right people God puts in your life in a response to a work that you've done. And now to be able to share this guy's story. And and one of the things you mentioned, as you said, you know, he prayed not to be known. And so he really was, and you wrote this in the introduction, that he was very similar in a sense to Mother Teresa in, in the work that he did. But he would never want to be compared to Mother Teresa. So this was a very humble person. And another attribute about him was that he was a very poor person. He wanted to embrace the life of poverty. He wanted to be a missionary. So he joins Mary Knoll and he realizes Mary Knoll isn't espousing the virtues of poverty that he wants to live. And so then he joins another order uh, in Belgium that takes him there to Belgium. And then he eventually, after ordination, goes off to Korea and there truly embraces a life of poverty. Could you just share his living situation? Because that was remarkable to me, the conditions that he sought to live in and, and to do so by choice. Father Looney, he understood that if he was going to become the fullest measure of Christ and persona Christi, that he needed to really live like him, not through three quarters or a half measure, but full bore as best as he could. So he wanted to live like Christ sort of stretched out as the poor man on the cross, bleeding out, living poor, pouring himself out. So he said, if I'm going to absorb sort of those sacramental graces to feed the poor, the humiliated, the abandoned of South Korea after the Korean War, I need to strip down and do amputation to my will. I need to... Um, do amputation to any measure of comfort. So he moved into a condemned mountainside shack for five years where there was no running water, no electricity, no heat, no AC, no comforts. Um, because he wanted to, he wanted to be fed as he was being stripped down with that ascetical life. He wanted to be fed by Christ. Um, he knew that the poor would sort of come to embrace him if he lived like them, if he became them. So, so that's what he did. He, he moved into a condemned shack. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's a shack. It's, it's very poor. And in fact, he even got frostbite because it was so cold in this place. And, and he shows his foot to someone and they were just horrified really by how he was living in this way. Yeah. He, he, um, he was very, so saints, now he's not a saint yet, he's venerable, he's on the path, but saints are, are unlike the rest. He, he was, he's a radical. He's, he's, he doesn't, the, the world sees him as an oddball. Um, so the fact that he would get frostbite in this shack, um, obviously he doesn't want frostbite, but that's part of the accoutrements. He said, I want poverty. Well, this is an effect of poverty. You will get frostbite or you will be hungry or you will sleep uncomfortably with a putrid smell built into the walls. This is part of what the poor felt. The poor in South Korea, they got frostbite 
with those cold Manchurian China winds that came through in the wintertime. And so he wanted to feel what the poor felt. He understood that he couldn't live on the periphery of poverty. He had to be inside the walls of poverty. So part of that was accepting the what the poor would, would have to unfortunately embrace day in and day out. So he goes off to Korea. He gets ordained first in the United States and then goes to Korea to be a missionary. And of course, to do the work he's doing, he needed money. And one of the impressive things is, is that he creates this organization and begins begging missions and even brings the bishop from Korea over uh, in order to to fundraise to support the mission. So he, he realized that he needed the help of others. And so he sought that help in, in different communities, wherever he was welcome to preach. But he brings this bishop, Bishop Choi, I think is how you say it, if I'm not mistaken. And I couldn't believe what happens in the life of Father Schwartz is that this Bishop Choi turns against him uh, in his ministry, tries to shut him down, and why was that? Why did he not like Father Schwartz? Father Schwartz saw that Bishop Choi was taking from the till. Father, Father Al started this ministry to give all of the money to the poor, to the humiliated. Mary, the Virgin Mary in, in Belgium said, you must bring comfort to the abandoned. So when he started this mission, it was for the poor. It was for nothing else. Well, Father Bishop Choi, who incarnated him in Korea, was giving money to priest friends, politicians, um, government functions. Um, he was buying up land. And Father Al said, you're cut off. I've, we, we agreed to give the money to the poor, and that's all. You will get no more money. You're done. So he took, he took the money away. He, Father Al was generous. He said, Bishop, your eminence or your excellency, um, this is for you too to, to feed the poor. And initially it worked fine. But when Bishop Choi got a little overeager with his, with the money, Father Al said, you're done. So Father Al was, was bold. He was audacious and he was dangerous. He, he did things that others don't do. Again, he was, he was a saint. He was radical. So he, he cut Bishop Choi off. And after that happened, things got really ugly because Bishop Choi began to condemn him to other priests, other bishops in the Far East. And the church always came to his defense in a sense. He he met this uh, bishop in Italy who really was one of his defenders, and that was who his case went to. This Bishop Troy actually went so far as to uh, put really like a, a ransom out on his life with these gangsters or these mobsters, and uh, Father Al was beaten for it. And he was, you know, just, I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom, like, why would a bishop turn in such a way and to do something so evil in that sense? But the story, in a sense, has a, I don't know if you can call it a happy ending, but bishops typically retire at age 75, and this bishop was asked by the Vatican after an investigation to retire at the age of 61. They realized he no longer could carry out his ministry, that he wasn't living up to the ideal of his priesthood, of his episcopacy. He wasn't the bishop or the priest that we needed to save the church, actually. Thanks for the plug, Father Looney. No, he, he was not, and Rome saw it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to go too far afield with Father Al, but no matter who came up against Father Al, again, it was that Marian dimension. 
he was always in a certain sense protected by Mary because he had become her slave. He said in Beno, I am your slave now. So whether it was American bishops or his own bishop or a mafia gangster, a murderous kingpin, um, whoever, even a seminary rector in Belgium, whenever somebody came against him, Mary said, I have taken my, my, young, my young boy, my, my Aloysius, made him a priest. I am protecting him now because he has given me his life. So, so in a certain sense, Father Al understood, it doesn't really matter what comes up against me. Mary will protect me. So, so against that bishop, yeah, Rome said it's time for you to, to retire early because this man that you're going up against, he's a holy priest that has committed his life to the poor. Well, you've mentioned a few times now about Father Al's Marian devotion, and, and truly he did have a very strong Marian devotion. There's this Marian apparition in Belgium, Benoit, and so Father Aloysius goes over studies in Leuven and eventually makes his way, discovers Our Lady of Benoit, and because of his great love for the poor, Mary, who said, I am the virgin of the poor, He's drawn to that Marian apparition. He wants to go into the missions. And so he entrusts, he gives everything to Mary in this act of kind of an, an act of oblation, if you will, uh, to the Virgin of the Poor. And so she guided him all throughout his life and his ministry, his missionary work. What else can you tell us about his Marian devotion? Well, everything about Father Al. Um, Father Looney, and you'll appreciate this as a Marian priest, he was impregnated with Marian devotion. So everything he did, it was almost, um, he pondered the way Mary pondered. Uh, he was very prayerful. So in prayer, he would say, okay, Mary, I've given you my life. I've given you all of me. So he would spend intense periods of time in prayer. Mary, what's the next step? Mary, what are you pondering? Because I want to ponder the same thing. So again, his eyes were always soberly assessing what Mary would do, how Mary would act with the poor. Um, so really, I, I guess it's kind of simple. It, it's complex, but it's simple. And the, I guess maybe the best way I'll put it is this. Father Al, it was sort of like a three-tiered kaleidoscope. Um, if the gospel said it, well, he did it. Uh, if the saints lived it, well, then Father Al lived it. And most importantly, maybe for Father Al, if Mary was leading him there, he was going to go. So those three things, gospel, the saints, and Mary, it was always Mary. If Mary was leading him there, he was going to go. And it didn't matter if it was a chaotic place, a dangerous place, a, a, a leprous place, Father Al went. And in his Marian devotion, he was very devoted to different Marian prayers, especially the rosary, numerous references to the rosary in your book about his life, uh, how he prayed it, where he prayed it, when he prayed it, things like that. Uh, he ends up expanding his missionary work from Korea to lots of different places, goes to Mexico, and, and there discovers Our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, entrusts the Mexican mission to Our Lady of Guadalupe. So there's a lot there in how he saw Mary, you know, as the one leading his work. Of course, she was interceding for the work. She was really mediating all the graces he needed uh, to carry out these labors. Yeah, he, he um, so Father Al knew if he wanted to be a strong priest that he, he had to, there was a cost. 
So when Father Al contracted Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, in 1989, he was still in the Far East, in the Philippines and Korea. And he felt because, you know, poverty was crushing Mexico from everything he heard on the other side of the world, that he wanted to come to Mary's rescue. But it was no longer Our Lady of Beno, it was Our Lady of Guadalupe. And he heard that Mexicans were becoming uh, Protestantized or losing the faith altogether or becoming evangelicals. And he wanted to come and, and, and sort of to Juan Diego and, and bring Mary back to Juan Diego and to the Mexican poor. So he left, he took off and he said, Mary, I, I, now, I now go to you as Our Lady of Guadalupe and I, and I come to, to rescue the poor. And, and uh, a year and a half later in 1991, he, he had built his first girls town. And, and, and Father Looney, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know if you know much about him, but these girls towns and boys towns, there are seven story high buildings with over 3000 children in them. There's four or five different buildings. So this, this takes a lot of, again, work. There's a cost, there's money, there's sacrifice. Um, so, but Father Al always stepped into it because he felt that Mary was calling him there. Yeah, and these boys' towns, these girls' towns that he creates, as you just described, these seven, seven-story buildings, these homes to orphans and uh, other poor and disadvantaged individuals, that work, he couldn't do it all by himself. And so he actually recruits individuals into this work, and he forms an order called the Sisters of Mary. So what could you share about that religious community? We got to the heart of everything with that question, Father Lee. He understood in 1964 that these orphans that were, a lot of them were just left to die on the street in Korea because people were devastated by the war still. And, and he knew that these children needed to be mothered back to health. So he started this small little order of sisters called the Sisters of Mary. And he knew that these kids needed mothers more than they needed sisters. So, so this little band of Four women became an order. There was 12 in 64, and, and now there's over 400 throughout the world that take, over, take care of over 20,000 children in seven different countries. Because, again, it was always Mary. What, what would Mary have me do? Well, the Blessed Mother would have me mother these kids back to health with sisters that took care of them like moms do. And this work continues to this very day. In fact, you have a podcast, and you speak to one of the priests who's been uh, who's carrying on the mission of Father Al, and and he hears. I, I listen to a few episodes. He hears hundreds of confessions in any given day, hours of confessions, and you know, as a priest who who spends maybe two hours in the confessional a week. It's, it's remarkable to hear the, the work that your friend is, is doing down in the missions, in, I think, in Mexico. But this work continues today. So who oversees the missions, do you know, in Korea? Is it just the sisters today? Or in all of these different places, uh, they, they must have a priest at each one. Is that right? Um, tr tragically, they, they don't. So Father Dan Leary is the chaplain for over 20,000 children. So he's, so for instance, right now he's in um, Honduras. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he was in Guatemala. And in next week, he'll be in Brazil. So he travels. So last year, he was given his release from Cardinal Gregory in Washington to become, it was a call within a call to become a missionary. Wow. So so he, it, it's, difficult, it's difficult to hear confessions for thousands of kids in every country. So 
So the confession line doesn't end. Um, I talked to him last week and he, 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 would, he wouldn't want me to say this, but I'm going to say it. He heard nine hours, successive hours of confessions. <laughs> he said as a joke, Kevin, I only had to go to the bathroom once and that's a record for me. So nine hours of confessions and, and, and Father Looney, I think what your listener would need to hear is this. So pe- people often think of poverty, obviously, as a lack of food, a lack of nutrition, a lack of housing, medical care, but, but there's a more crushing form of poverty. And he deals confession after confession after confession with girls that come in that have been sexually abused by uncles or gang members or human traffickers. So these, these, these poor, innocent 12, 13, 14-year-old kids come in with these blue whale-sized wounds and Father Dan, so it's one thing to absolve sin, but Father Dan needs to go into the wound and say, no, this wasn't sin. You were, your, your innocence and purity was taken. I need to sort of lead you back to hell. So not only does he do the hard work of, of absolution, but it's the hard work of the wound. And it's in a different language, like Spanish is his second language. So it's kind of daming the leper-like where you're just in this box and it, it's just a long line that doesn't end. But he knows it has to be done because without absolution, the Satan's going to still work in these poor kids' souls. And it's boys, too. You know, boys will, boys will be saved by these sisters of Mary brought into these boys' towns, and they're beaten by gang members because they didn't agree to sell drugs or whatever. That's true poverty. It's, it's what happens in these rotten towns, these human trafficking towns in Guerrero, Veracruz, Oaxaca, where these gang members come in and they take these poor kids that already live in poverty and they suck them into these dark areas. And, and thank God, these sisters of Mary, just like Father Al, they're bold. So they go into these most dangerous villages, find these poor kids, bring them into these humble kingdoms of resurrection. And Father Dan gets in there with these sisters and bring them back to health. And, and five years later, they become engineers and architects and orchestral musicians and they run companies and are the mechanics, et cetera. But throughout, to answer your question, a long-winded way, there's there's certain there's three or four sisters that run like the Far East, Tanzania, the Americas. So they have sort of mother superiors, and Father Dan is sort of the roving chaplain. Wow. Okay. And one of the things too that I kind of took away from the the biography is that, and you kind of mentioned that in five years they become A, B, or C, right? And so, so you take them out of the life of poverty. You're equipping them for success. You're giving them food every day. You're educating them. You're providing for their spiritual well being. And then because of all of this, well, now they're going to go back into society and they're going to be able to help their poor families because they're going to go off and, and get jobs and be able to support others. So it's really a holistic approach uh, that Father Aloysius Schwartz had as he created these boys' towns and girls' towns. Hey, Father, I, I don't know of, an, of a better mission in the world because of this. Not only, as you say, do they go back into the communities and, and, and sort of not only rebuild it, but recatechize those that have left the faith because all they know is resurrected joy, almost like Lazarus-like joy being raised from the dead by these sisters. So they don't know any better than to be authentic in their Catholicism. They just want it, they're just like bright hallelujahs of hope for these broken villages. But I believe in a very real way, because I've spent a substantial amount of time down at these boys' towns and girls' towns in Mexico, I believe that 
they're saving, how do I put this? The battered part of the Catholic Church because they're sending out true, authentic Catholic missionaries into universities, workplaces, villages that truly spread the Catholic faith because they don't know any better. There's no straitjacketing uh, the the fullness of the faith of sort of contracepting the more difficult parts to professor. They, they just know true Catholic joy because it was built into them by the sisters. So I, I, I don't know anything better than what the Sisters of Mary are doing. Definitely. And I think that this story of Father Aloysius Schwartz, Venerable Aloysius Schwartz, that it's a story that we need. And I'm so grateful that you wrote this book, Priest and Beggar. Uh, I personally say that Every person should gift this book to their priest. Every priest should read this book because once you meet this person, you'll realize kind of as a priest, you'll realize how you're not living out your vocation as best you could because this man, these saintly men can inspire that. But you've done a lot of media shows already and the reception I think has been pretty phenomenal to this individual, this priest that nobody really knew about. Um, but for maybe two things, could you first share, well, how did this process for canonization begin or when did it begin when he became venerable? But then secondly, why do we need this story today? Well, the Vatican had spent um, many years studying his life, researching his life, interviewing uh, many dozens of people about his life. So he's, but he was declared finally after the investigations heroic of heroic virtue, he was declared venerable in 2015 by Pope Francis. So he's on the path of canonization, uh, just needs a couple of miracles. And actually, that's why I'm glad the biography was written and Ignatius was kind enough to, to publish Priest and Beggars because the cat's out of the bag. You know, now people get to know who this guy is. And I hope that people, especially those with muscular diseases, ALS or bodily diseases, can ask for his intercession. So he can receive the, the miracles. There's already many that are claiming miracles from Father Al throughout the world, those that know him. But as we know, Father, the, these, these miracles need to be investigated and authenticated. Um, the second part of your question, I think Father, Al, Father Al's life is important for, the, for these times is because I think we, we all know now um, that comfort has crushed part of the Catholic Church. We saw what happened in 2018, what was revealed? Well, really, it all comes down to comfort. These these certain bishops and priests, they, they live too comfortably, and sin got in. The devil, the door was open for the devil to get in, and our church was scandalized. Even today, we see a choice for comfort, whether it's a, a million-dollar chancery or, or rectories with maids and every day or chefs and cachet. It's just Father Al would say, no, no. When you knelt down or when you lay down and you became a priest of God forever, you chose to be like Christ starved on the cross. Christ who gave up all, who looked at the rich young man and said, will you pick up your cross daily and follow me? There's a choice. So we all can sort of re-engineer or recategorize our life and say, well, you know, Jesus, I'm following you this way or I'm doing it that way. But Father Al would say, no, no, you must go all the way. You must become like the rich poor man who didn't say no and walk away, but said, yes, I will give up all riches because Jesus, you call me daily to pick up my cross and give up all. So Father, I would look on the landscape today, I believe, and nobody can speak for the deceased, but I believe he would say no more opulence, no more comfort, no more softness. 
look what is going on in the world today. Look what is going on in the Catholic faith today. We're bleeding out. <clears throat> Catholic lady will be drawn today by those witnesses that are subtracting from their lives. Um, so I, I think that that level of renunciation, um, Father Rob would really be sort of proclaiming from the highest hills, like, please, please subtract from yourselves and lead us back. So I, I think that's why he's important for, for folks today. You mentioned his death and his illness. He had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It really begins to rob him of so many things in his priestly ministry, but he perseveres through it. He continues on. He never relents or gives up on his mission. And really, he had this very holy death. And and so now we we can turn to him by his holy example and ask for his prayers. Your book, Priest and Beggar, has the prayer for his uh, beatification at the back of it. So people can begin praying for that cause. Is the cause sponsored by the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., or did some other diocese sponsor it? No, Father Al died in the Philippines, and, and right now his cause is under the control of Cavite in, in the Philippines. Okay, sure. Father Al was very dedicated to Mary, and one of the ways that I always end this podcast is simply to ask the guest a few questions about their own Marian devotion. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because as I ask three or four questions about Marian devotion in your own life, uh, really, we could answer them also for Father Aloysius Schwartz. So, for example, I always ask, well, do you have a favorite title for the Blessed Virgin Mary? And so for Father Al, we would say, well, that's the Virgin of the Poor. Uh, that would be, or Our Lady of Beno. That would be his favorite title. Do you personally have a favorite title? Or maybe you've taken Our Lady of Beno, the Virgin of the Poor, to be yours now, given this work. Uh, um, Our Lady of Beno doesn't live as an icon in my heart yet. She should, <laughs> because I've spent so many so many hours reading about Benoit in the 1930s and Father Al's, um, how he fell for Maria Becco and Mary there. But but something about always Our Lady Star of the Sea um, has has sort of rung in my heart just because of, um, you know, Mary's that sort of that guidepost, that star. There's something very beautiful and mystic about it. I um, Our Lady Star of the Sea is always, I've, I've been drawn, I've, I've been drawn to that title. Sure. And Father Al Schwartz was a person dedicated to the rosary. And again, answering this question for him, while he walked praying the rosary, he would pray it at different points in his life. Um, he prayed it every day for sure. Um, so I, I always ask people, is there a tip that you can offer to help people pray the rosary better? Because I think sometimes people look at the rosary and they're like, they're intimidated by, I don't pray it well, you know. So is there anything you've done to, to pray the rosary better? Yes, I'm very lucky because I'm an Irishman and I'm a sports writer. So I, I sort of uh, enter into those mental landscapes sort of the way an Irish poet might. So, so, I've, so I've prayed the rosary this morning, the glorious mysteries, but yesterday was the joyful. So, so um, uh, oh, no, yesterday was the sorrowful. Monday, so here's, so joyful. For instance, third joyful mystery is the nativity, the birth of the Lord. So what I'll do, uh, or whatever mystery it is, uh, nativity, I'll sort of be with the angels that, as they're talking to the shepherds, like, okay, you're the rejected sort. You're up on the hillsides. You, no one's paying attention to you. You're like the, the lepers. Well, I'm going to walk you down now. Follow my light. 
down into that manger down there. You don't know what's going on. As we go down, you'll begin to see, you'll hear through how we rejoice in our hallelujahs. So I just kind of enter into the scene, that landscape, and then you go into to the, to the presentation, and that leads you to, well, Mary had nothing but joy in that nativity scene, but now the arrows are piercing her because of what she learned about about what what she was told about, and you you know you will suffer because of uh, this sign of contradiction. So you're just, I'm again, it's just sticking yourself as an old sport trader. I just observed, and I would have to write about it and make deadline. <laughs> it's the same way as as someone who prays the rosary. I'm observing the mystery, but rather than typing on a computer, I'm sort of just through my Hail Marys, I'm, 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 I'm looking at this scene unfold. And that's the only way I can pray the rosary. Because if I do it any other way, then I'm thinking about, you know, oh, I didn't empty the trash this morning. Oh, my son is off the rails because we had a little argument this morning. I need to be into the landscape. Sure. So it's entering into the mystery, really, with your mind, with your mind's eye. That, that's beautiful. And to think, of, you know, I don't think we... Uh, ponder the angels enough. So I love how you brought that out, you know, as the angels appear to the shepherds and the shepherds are led then to, to visit Christ and how we're being led to visit Christ, for example, in that mystery. So uh, wonderful. Now, also too, I ask about Marian apparitions, lots of Marian apparitions. Father Al, we could say Our Lady of Bano for sure, maybe even Our Lady of Guadalupe as, as she enters his heart later in his ministry. But uh, for you, do you have a Marian apparition that, that you have a fondness for? Well, for years it was Lourdes. Um, I'd spent uh, a week and a half in Lourdes and, and I can't get enough of, of the place. It sort of lives in me. But I'll tell you what, Father Looney, um, it's been replaced. It's been replaced by an apparition site that Mother Teresa, Padre Pio, and John Paul all said was authentic and real, but the church has yet recognized it as such. Oh, and that is Garambandal. Yeah. Garambandal, Spain. I spent four days in there two summers ago, and I will never in my life, maybe I will, I don't think I will, I'll never in my life go to a town way up in the mountains of northern Spain, a um, little village, like a little middle medieval-like village um, that was more sanctified by a, a Marian feeling, a, a, a holier hmm. feel. You just cross the threshold into this town and you're brought into a different holy dimension. I just want to share one, one quick story. The second day we were there, there was a woman around nightfall and she was ringing a bell, walking the village streets. The village is very small. And I asked a villager who lived there, I said, what, what is she doing? And this, and this lady, the lady who was ringing the bell, she looked older than Moses. <laughs> she was a very, she was an elderly lady and she had lived there her whole life. And, and um, she said, well, let me hear, she's ringing the bell because she's reminding all the villagers every day, this time of night, to pray for the poor souls in purgatory. Oh wow! So, yeah, and, and this is a this is a town that every evening at seven o'clock, all of a sudden the people will leave their homes or leave their farmlands or leave their shepherding. Their shepherds there too, and they start walking up these small alleyways, praying the rosary in front of the chapel in the small square. So that that lives in me now. Garamandal, Spain, where Mary appeared, and I encourage your listener. To, 
to, to read what Mary had to say to the four sort of 12, 13, 14-year-old girls in the early 1960s. Yeah, that's an apparition that has captured my mind a little bit. Uh, I haven't been there personally. Uh, there was this film that was out. Uh, it was supposed to be in theaters, and then they did a whole one-week release online. I don't know if you saw the Garen Bedell movie. Uh, so I, I did. did watch it. That was kind of my first introduction to Garen Bendel. Like, had heard of it, heard similar things like you said, Mother Teresa, Padre Pio liked it. Uh, I do know that they're, you know, given your work uh, of the priest that we need to save the church, there was this priestly element to the message there of praying for the sanctification of clergy. So uh, there is something there. I know that there's an individual I know from Chicago who is trying to build a priest retreat house called A Building for Mary uh, in Garen Bendel. So he wants to take priests there. So, you know, I, I would like to go there personally just, just to observe it, to see what you say, uh, and to see if I experience that. Um, one of the things you mentioned they do is they pray the pray the rosary every day at seven o'clock. And that's what they do every day in Beno, Belgium, where, uh, where, where Father Aloysius Schwartz, his beloved shrine to the Virgin of the Poor, every day they've prayed the rosary at seven o'clock and they did so during the war um every night gathering there praying and and i i hope i pray to dear god that that the priests who were assigned to 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 Beno, that they continued that especially during covid and during the lockdown that 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 succession of praying the rosary every day since 1933 is something that took place uh, even during this COVID-19 pandemic and everything around that. So, well, how wonderful, how beautiful of a story of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz. It's a story that needs to be read, needs to be heard. So really invite people to go out and get Priest and Beggar, The Heroic Life of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz, available from Ignatius Press. And uh, do you have a website or anything? How can people find you online, I guess? Thank you, Father. What, what I would say is, well, my website is, is you can go to kevinwells.org, but, but I would really encourage your listener to go on to worldvillages.org to see what Father Al has established for the Sisters of Mary. Um, you know, 20,000 children, it's a lot of kids to support. So if, if you're looking to share part of your tithe with, with who I believe the kids are helping to catechize the world with authentic Catholicism, Go to worldvillages.org and you'll see how you can support the mission. Sort of enter into Father Al and the sister's story. And, I'll, and I, Father, I'll, I'll end on a very beautiful note. So later on tonight at 7 o'clock, over 20,000 children will be reciting the rosary from all these villages, boys towns and girls town. There's 15 throughout the world. They'll be praying the rosary. They do every day of the year. Um, so that, that goes on. And also, I want to throw something out, Father. Father Looney, I don't want to put you on the spot. But Father Dan said, Kevin, if you know any priests that want to help me in these confession lines, <laughs> send them down. Send them down. I'll, I'll pay for the trip. And he means this. He'll pay for the trip. He's looking for, for help because he's, you know, he's 17, 18 hour days every day. So, so any priest out there that might hear this, this podcast, um, he's taking all comers. Yeah, you know, I don't know if my Spanish is up to par to hear confessions, but it would be marvelous to go and to see the work uh, and to see how Father Aloysius Schwartz, how his work continues with Father Dan Leary. And, and you host a podcast, what's it called, One to One, is that right? 
Yes, the one-to-one podcast. And so you want to hear Father Dan Leary share about this ministry and this life. Uh, you and him converse quite, quite a bit uh, on that uh, with your episodes that you release available on podcast platforms. And I'm so glad you recommend maybe checking out uh, Father Aloysius' uh, ministry and to support it financially if you're able. I was going to recommend that. I'm glad that you did. And I'm sure that I will be going over to that website to make a donation uh, because I've been touched by the saintly man who we pray will one day grace the altars of the church. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kevin. Father Looney, it's been great. Thank you very much. 